0: The Apostle Paul, 200 years ago, surely before he would be executed, beheaded by the Romans, wrote these words to Timothy. And some of us read these words this week and our faith comes from hearing Bible reading program, which by the way, a brand new one kicks off tomorrow. Now I'll be sending out a link to it. I'll be, I'll be stalking you with emails and texts that encourage you to join in on this Bible reading plan reading through the New Testament. And uh, here's the challenge. You know, if you participate in this, and at the end of it, you say, you know what, reading the Bible those weeks wasn't worth it. It was kind of a waste of time, and it did not benefit my life one way at all. I, if you do that, and that's your response, I will take you out to dinner, all right? All right? So either you're going to be blessed by God, or I'm taking you out to dinner, right, of your choice. If you read the Bible for 90 days, and you come out of it, you know what, what a waste of stinking time that was, I will take you out to dinner. That's a win-win, right? You choose the restaurant, but you got to participate and be honest, right? Okay, I will stalk you like a dog on a bone, right? And here's these words that Paul wrote. We looked at them last week, but are them again. He's in jail in Roman prison, surely to be executed. His final words, he writes to Timothy, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure, the time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. A question, when you get to the end of your earthly life, and understand with every tick of the clock, you are getting closer to that day, right? So when you get there, would you rather be able to say the words in column A or column B? You know, do you want to get in your life and say, you know what, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now I know that in store for me is a crown of righteousness that Jesus himself will award to me on that day. Okay? Would you like to say that? Or, I didn't fight the good fight. I didn't finish the race. I didn't keep the faith. And now I am very unsure of what awaits me when I stand before him. Okay? All the column B's, raise your hand. All right? All the column A's. All right? I mean, who would choose that, right? I mean, who, who would want that to summarize their life when they stand before our Savior King? Yet I'm afraid that many will end up living a Columbi life. And that's because for you to be able to say what Paul said when his death was imminent, and when your death is imminent, it's not simply going to happen without any effort on your part. Get it? Yeah. Some of you got it. Good. Which brings us to our new message series powerful passages that we kicked off last week by diving into Philippians chapter 3. Understanding Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out seven keys, seven truths, seven action steps that if you and I would take will enable us to stand firm in the Lord. And how do I know that that is what Philippians chapter three is about? Well, because of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter four, verse one, he he says, "Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown—that this is added by the way—that's not in the Bible. In other words, all the stuff I just said, right, is how you should stand firm in the Lord. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord." Last week, we began unpacking three of those action steps. First, standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of rejoicing in the Lord. Paul writes, following my brothers. Remember, he's in prison. Following my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And see, I'm being very biblical the way I review all the time, right? That's very biblical, right? I have no problem teaching the same things again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now, how is rejoicing in the Lord a safeguard? Understand, anytime your life lacks joy, ever been there? Are you there now? Anytime your life lacks joy, you are extremely vulnerable to attacks and temptation from the evil one. To fall into his depression, to isolate yourself from other people, he loves to get you alone. To respond harshly and angrily, to those close to you, which only creates more reasons not to have joy, or to accept this offer to find joy in other places that are very often destructive places. Earthly circumstances often change and head south. In this world, you will have trouble. But listen, the Lord, his plan, his purposes, and his promises never change. They always stand firm. Amen? Amen. Yes, life can be hard and difficult, hurtful and discouraging. I mean, there are times when joy and rejoicing cannot seem further away from us. But we can always rejoice in Him and and who He is and and what He's done and, and what He's doing. We can rejoice in His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. We can rejoice in our acceptance and our forgiveness And are guaranteed blow your mind forever with him in heaven. Understand, if if our greatest joy really isn't him, then we really can do what Paul said in Philippians four, verse four: Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again: Rejoice. Your life is hard, but you're going to heaven. Life is hard, but God walks with you. We can always rejoice. It's a safeguard. Next, standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of heeding the warning of putting confidence in the flesh. In other words, putting confidence in our own effort to be right with God. And at one time, that's exactly what Paul did as, as, he, as he anchored being right with God to such things as his family heritage, his social status, he had a good reputation, his biblical knowledge, his religious activity, and his moral lifestyle. But then Paul came to the point in his life when he realized that those good things, having confidence in them that placing hope in his own effort could not save him, could not make him right with God. You see, Paul eventually figured out what we eventually figured out that we will never save ourselves by being good because we're just not good at being good. Amen? next, we saw last week that standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of considering everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes, whatever was to my profit, family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, moral lifestyle, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. And remember, in Jesus, you and I have found someone who's worth losing everything for. As Jesus said, He is worth losing your father and mother, your husband or wife, your sons or your daughters. He's worth everything. Question Is that the Jesus you have found? The one that's worth giving up everything for? I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And interestingly, the only time that Paul, Paul talks about the Lord and our Lord, the only time he ever uses the phrase, my Lord, is right here. He's getting personal here. He's not just the Lord. He's not just our Lord. Paul says, he's my Lord. Nothing compares to the surpassing greatness that I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish, I consider them dung, I consider them excrement, I consider them poop, right? That I may gain Christ. Be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, one that never measures up, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. We're going to do a few repeat backs. If you're here visiting, hey, we're glad you're here online, glad you're here. Even at home, you can repeat back. I love having people repeat things back. You know, it lets me know everybody's alive out there, right? Okay, you got to say with passion, because I'll just do it like one time. All right, just one repeat back. You guys ready? Okay, I got two people ready. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty confident, okay? Say with passion like you really mean it. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want to become like him in his death. I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. You crushed it. Well, that was last week. And there's no trouble for me to preach those things against you. I'm not against you to you. <laughs> and uh, now we're going to dive into the next four. Before we do, uh, would you all take two minutes to welcome those around you? Say hi to them. Maybe meet someone you don't know or haven't seen for a while. <laughs> Good morning, ma'am. You made it. You made it <laughs> 30, there's 39 seconds on the clock. Yeah. Plenty of time. Good to see you guys. Hi. Hi. Nicole. Nicole. I met you before, haven't yes. I? Yeah. here. going to get a water. Oh, okay. All right. Good to see you again. Hey, good morning, brother. Hey. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good, morning, good to I see you. Good to be here. Yeah, I've been you. about nine Okay. Okay. What's up, buddy? What's up? That's cruel posting all those pictures. Oh, Steve is so beautiful. I've never been I, I, I've never been <coughs> to place tropical before. I, but that looked nice. I've heard I have a cousin that goes there every year. If you and Lori can ever go, I'm telling you, go. Steve, it is it is paradise on earth. It is unbelievable. Wow. All the people, it's just you don't feel like a tourist. You just feel at home. You wanted to say, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't want to come home. <coughs> running after, it's running after me. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right. That was awesome. Thanks for letting me know that you're all are alive out there, right? That's good. Uh, Next, standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of straining toward what is ahead. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us, telling me, telling you in verses 12 through 14. Now, understand, if you want to stand firm in the Lord, if you want to be able to say, I have fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race, you need to be straining forward to what lies ahead. And what I want to do is, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to read all three verses and then we'll dive into them a verse at a time. Paul writes, not that I've already attained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straightening toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's dive into the first part. Paul writes, not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, Again, who wrote those words? That's Paul, right? He's he's the guy who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He's the guy who performed many miracles, even raising someone from the dead. He's the guy who shared the gospel and planted churches from Jerusalem to Rome. He's the guy who endured and suffered and sacrificed so much for Christ and the expansion of his church, prisons, and beatings, shipwrecks, floggings, hunger, and thirst. Understand, Paul in in verse 12, he's making a sober assessment of his life. And he concludes that he has not arrived, that he's not reached the goal, that that he's not perfect. And uh, that word perfect means mature or complete. And and so Paul, he's looking at his life and he's saying, you know what? I'm not fully mature yet. I, I still have a lot more growing to do when it comes to my faith and my walk with Christ. He hadn't hadn't arrived. Understand, it's extremely dangerous to sit back and be content with where you are and your walk with Christ. To think that you've already arrived. To hit cruise control and kick back. Listen, if Paul had not arrived, then neither has a single person in this room or watching online. Amen? Amen. Look, at, look three people in the eye and tell them, I have not arrived. You can do long distance looking. And now look at them and say, you've not arrived. You have not arrived. And I knew that one would be more fun, right? But in this verse, not only do we see Paul making a sober assessment, we also see him putting forth strenuous effort. He says, not that I've already attained all this or already been made perfect, but I I press on. Press on is a Greek word, dioko. It means to move rapidly and decisively after an object. It's to run swiftly in order to catch another person. It was a term used for a runner in a race. So the picture that Paul is painting is as is a, is a runner running and he's widening his stride, he's pumping his arm, he's moving his legs, he's pushing his chest out to the finish line. And, and why was Paul pressing on? Why was he making this effort? What was he trying to do? To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And, and the, that word that's translated take hold is just one word, it's the Greek word Cata lumbano, cata lumbano. It's a strong word. It means to seize upon, to forcibly take possession of, to make one's own. It's a word that was used in Mark 9 when a demon took possession of a young boy. The son of the father who said, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. It's the word that's used in John chapter 1 verse 5. When it says that Jesus is the light of man and that the darkness could not overcome, could not seize, could not take control of that light, could not overtake it. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And here's the deal. Paul knows that that Jesus took hold of him for a reason, for a purpose, And, and the purpose he took hold of Paul is the same reason that he takes a hold of each and every one of us. So that we would grow both in our knowledge of and our likeness of him. A few verses. Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then we read this in 1 Peter. Did this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps? And in 1 John 2 verse 2 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. It's literally the word walk. Whoever claims to walk in him must walk as Jesus walked. And to stand firm... In Christ is to become like Christ by pursuing Christ. To stand firm in Christ is to become like Christ by pursuing Christ. And it's here where we see this great tension that is our Christian journey. Check out this, this statement. Human effort, though not the means to our salvation, is always the results of our salvation see, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, right? James talked about that in James chapter 2. Matter of fact, he says that faith without action is actually, it's dead. It it can't save anyone. Understand, there's nothing passive about the Christian life. In fact, Paul said this earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence, pull up a chair, sit some iced tea, and wait till I come back to take you to heaven. Is that what he says? No. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to fill his good purpose. Paul says we must continue to work out our salvation, continue to work out what God has already put in us. And Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, right? That, hey, physical training has some value, but godliness has value in all things, now and in the life to come. Then he writes, that is why we labor. And and that word labor carries the idea of of working and striving to the point of exhaustion. It's a word that's used in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus walks up to his soon-to-be disciples and they say, Master, we've worked hard all day and haven't caught anything that is why we labor and strive the word for strive is agonizomai agonizomai where you get our word agony that is why we labor and strive because we put our hope in the living God who save all people and especially of those who believe I am not like Paul each of us if we want to stand firm in the Lord must make a sober assessment of a spiritual life and then we must put forth a strenuous effort. Get it? Good. Here's another passage where Paul talks about the need for us to always put forth a strenuous effort in our walk with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning of verse 24. He writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only but everyone gets a trophy. No, he didn't say that, right? But only one gets the prize. In Paul's day, that's how it worked. You know who got the crown? The winner. And actually, before 1896, only the winner got prizes in the Olympics. There, there were no bronze and silver, right? Only the winner got one. Only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to Cacalabano seize the prize. Everyone who competes into the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. I I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. And isn't that what athletes do? They make their body their slave. They tell their bodies what to do. They tell tell their bodies to get up when they don't want to get up. They tell their bodies what to eat and what not to eat. They tell their bodies, you know what, you're going to work out. And you're going to keep working out. You're going to keep running, even when you don't feel like running, because you're not in charge, body. I'm in charge. And we're going to do the same thing. In our walk with Christ. Christ. I understand our body may not want or feel like going to church, reading the Bible, praying, doing ministry, serving others, sharing her faith, giving her tithes, putting the needs of others before ourselves, serving the least of these, waiting until we're married to have sex, right? But we're to make our body a slave, and we tell our body what to do. Our body doesn't tell us what to do. Get it? Good. And why does Paul make his body a slave? He says this, so that, right, an explanation, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. See, Paul didn't want to just know the right things and teach the right things to other people and have them run the race when he's not running the race. And so he's very careful. You know what? I'm going to keep running. I'm I'm not going to do this to be shadow boxing. I'm not going to be running around aimlessly. I'm going to be running for the prize. He makes a sober assessment of his life. He puts forth a strenuous effort. And then he says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And that word consider is the word logizomai, where we get our word logarithm. In other words, Paul, he's doing the math. And he's saying, hey, here's where Jesus is, and here's the life that Jesus lived, and here's the life that I'm living. He was calculating it. He was weighing it. He was taking it into account and saying, you know what? I have a lot of ground to make up. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, and not two things, not three things. things—the no, one thing I do, and everything else is a distant second. Now here we see Paul's singular focus. Paul is saying that one thing rises to the top, one thing dominates his life. He's saying that he has one supreme goal, one highest priority, one overriding ambition. Understand, Paul, understand to Paul, there was one thing that, that demanded his full and undivided attention. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Runners do not win a race by looking behind, right? You ever been watching a football game and, and, and the runner's got the ball, maybe a wide receiver running back and he's heading towards the end zone and he does this, right? He looks behind him. And when, as he does that, his, his stride shortens, he slows down a bit, gets knocked out of bounds, gets tackled or maybe has the ball stripped, right? No, you keep running. You don't look over your shoulders, To stand from the Lord, you have to forget. You have to put out of your mind whatever is behind. Past sins, past failures, past hurts, past ways of trying to measure up, and even past successes and victories. Listen, victories can be very dangerous. They can lead us, again, to hidden cruise control and just coasting the rest of our life. Paul says, One thing I do is forgetting what's behind. You can't move forward if you keep looking back, right? And I've always used that analogy, right? In your car, you got the windshield, right? And you got a rearview mirror. What is bigger? Your windshield. Would you be a more successful driver staring at the rearview mirror going down the road or through the windshield, right? Obviously, we know the answer. And that's how we live our lives. We glance at it, right? Glance at it and learn from it. But, but we're, we're focused on what is right ahead of us. So see, looking back is not the way of the cross. Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. Luke nine, sixty-two. So, So what is in your past that you need to leave behind? So that you can stand firm in the Lord. Is it a hurt? Is it a sin? A failure? Always trying to measure up and earning your salvation? So, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. That word straining toward is one word. It's a verb that actually has two prefixes in front of it. That One means out, the other means upon. So the picture is of someone stretching out to lay his hand upon whatever is ahead of him. Paul says, I I press on. It's in in the present tense. So it's a a continuous action. It's not just church on Sunday pressing on. It's not just a man or woman's Bible study pressing on. It's not just attending a Christian conference pressing on. But it's in every day, all the time, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize, for which God has called be heavenward in Christ Jesus. To win the prize, right? That's why we play the game, right? <laughs> you play the game to win the prize. Whenever you watch a, whether it's college or pros, when a team wins a championship, they are pretty excited, right? Act like a bunch of children jumping on each other, high-fiving, going crazy, rolling on the ground, you know, doing snow angels on the confetti that just fell down from the, from the rafters of the stadium. That's why you play the game. What is the prize? Literally... The upward call of God is what it says. And listen, everything in Jesus is an upward call. It's an upward call to to live a life like he lived, the life you were created to live. It's an upward call to your future home in heaven. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward his head will enable you to stand firm in the Lord. Next, standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of living up to the truth we already know. I love this. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What things? The stuff I've been talking about. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Heed in the warning and putting confidence in the flesh. Strength toward what's his head. Sober assessment. All of us should take a view, take such a view of these things, a view that you must do these things in order to stand firm in the Lord. Right, I'm talking about this, Paul says, and you need to do them. And I love this part. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we already know. Question, do you think differently? Do you look differently than what Paul's teaching, Philippians chapter 3? I mean, have you made a sober assessment? Are you putting forth a strenuous effort? Do you have a single focus? Like, like are, are you running hard? Or are you running aimlessly? Or are you running at all? I mean, what would you think watching the Olympics coming up, on the, on, watching these guys run, and there's a guy just like, he's in the race, and he's just like, you'd be like, what, what is he doing? Or he sits down and sips a Coke, right? No. But we're in the same kind of race. We're in a more important race. They're doing it for a crown that won't last. We're doing it for a crown that will last forever. Then Paul writes this, only let us live up, I love this, to what we've already attained. I'm going to make a statement. Let me know if you agree or disagree with it. We would all be better Christians in the world would be a much better place if we would simply live up to the truths we already know. Is is that true? We already know enough to make a big change, right? Truths like loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would that make the world a better place? Loving your neighbor as yourself, reading God's word, praying more frequently, forgiving those who hurt you, attending church consistently, sharing your faith, reaching out and helping the least of these. Not showing favoritism or any partiality. Husband loving their wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, with us living up to what we already know, I contend we would be better Christians and the world would be a much better place. Only live up to what we have already attained. Standing firm in the Lord is the fruit of rejoicing in the Lord. Heeding the warning of putting confidence in the flesh. Considering everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Straining toward what is ahead, living up to the truth we already know, and following godly examples. Paul writes this, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. I understand, Paul is a great example on how to live the Christian life. He actually wrote in 1 Corinthians 11... Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And listen to Paul's writings in the book of Acts. We see many powerful portraits of what it looks like to live a life that pleases God. So Paul says, follow my example, but also the example of others. And he actually mentions a few in this letter. He mentions a guy named Timothy and a guy named Epaphrodites. I just want to read the the very end in Philippians chapter two. He says this about Epaphrodites. He says, So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourself could not give. Because he almost died. For the work of Christ. He risked his life. What an example, right? He almost died. He risked his life. See, to be able to stand firm such that we can say, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. We need to follow godly examples the ones we see in scripture and the ones we see in real life. Do you have any? Do you have any examples of people in your life that are crushing it for Jesus that you're following? Are you being a godly example to others? Parents, would you be comfortable with the outcome if you said to your children, Follow me as I follow Christ? Would you be comfortable saying that? Hey, if you do what I do, you're going to be good. If you follow my example of how I live for Christ, the things I do for Christ, and the sacrifices I make for Christ, you're going to be well on your way to who God wants you to be. Would you be comfortable saying that? Parents would be comfortable with the outcome if they actually did. Do as you do, not as you say. But we also need to avoid following ungodly examples. All right, and they're all around us. Paul talks about them in verse 18. As often told you before, and now again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. I understand that the cross is central to Christianity. Uh, just a few verses. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so who are the enemies of the cross? I can think of three enemies of the cross. Number one, those who doubt its sufficiency. Like the people Paul already wrote about, who are basically saying, you know what, Jesus is great, but you got to add following the law to it, right? Yeah. Jesus is great, but we got to add our own effort to it in order to be saved. that's the enemy of the cross. They doubt the finished work of Christ on the cross. Another enemy of the cross is those who mock and take offense at its necessity. A guy named Wilbur Fields, one of the commentaries I was studying this week, writes this. Even most unbelievers admire the teaching and the holy life of Jesus, but the cross is a stumbling block to them. The cross tells us that we are unclean sinners so foul that the perfect one had to die for us. The cross sweeps away all of our pride in human wisdom and knowledge. The cross says, All of your knowledge and morality does not impress God a bit. You must come to the cross in sincere recognition of your utter sinfulness if you want to be saved. He concludes, such implications are foolishness to the worldly wise. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians beginning, at chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? And where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, I love this, for the fullness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Those who deny its sufficiency, those who mock and are Take offense at its necessity. I got to come to Jesus to be saved. Another end of the cross, I think, are those who deny and ignore its call. We all know what Jesus said if we've been in church for a while, right? Whoever wants to be my disciple, when he has time, when it's convenient, when he doesn't have anything better to do, if he wants to, it's totally up to him. He should deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. Is that what he says? No, he didn't say that. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is Jesus, right? He says, you must. If you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. And to live other than that, to not deny ourselves, to ignore that call, I think is to be an enemy of the cross. I hear it's called, but I'm not going to answer. I'm going to do things my way. Paul continues, verse 19: Their destiny is destruction. And their god is their stomach. In other words, their god is their own appetite. <laughs> They worship whatever feels right and good to them. I'm saying they, they, they have so elevated their desires that their desires have become the divine authority in their life. And he says, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying that things that people should be ashamed of they're taking pride in. That they're taking pride in actions and behaviors that are part of the reason that Jesus had to die on a the cross. They're participating and celebrating things that Jesus died for. And that's pretty much the world we live in, isn't it? Many are living that way. Their desires are their God. They do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whoever they want, however they want. And they have a loud voice and they have many megaphones. And here's what I really believe. And, you know, I believe that standing for God's truth, as revealed in his word, will become more costly and more difficult in the years to come, All right? I, I just think it is. I think that's where we're heading because our world is a world where people, their God deserves their stomach, their God deserves their desires. They glory in their shame and they celebrate things they should be ashamed of, take pride in those things and they want us to say, celebrate with them. Isaiah said it this way, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, we live in an upside down world, a bizarro world, (laughs) a crazy place. And I'm here to tell you, the only safe anchor is the living and active word of God for what is right and what is wrong. Amen? Amen. Standing firm, the Lord is a fruit of rejoicing in the Lord. Heeding a warning of putting confidence in your flesh. Considering everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. Straining towards what is ahead. Living up to what you already know. Following godly examples and waiting eagerly for our true and future home. See, as Paul wraps up this section, he, he points their attention and our attention to heaven in anticipation of Jesus' return. He says, but our citizenship is where? It, it's in heaven. In the first century, citizenship referred to a colony of non-citizens living in a foreign land. And Paul's reminding them that, you know what, you may be living in Philippi, and yeah, I know sometimes you think your real citizenship is in Rome, but no, your real citizenship is in heaven. That your names are permanently written and recorded where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is enthroned and seated at the right hand of God. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. This part has always like blown my mind. Like, is that like really true? Will transform our lowly bodies. I got to tell you, my body feels more lowly every stinking day, right? Not just into a a pretty cool body, right? Right? that will be like his glorious body. Not body by Jake, remember that? Body by Jesus, right? That just popped in my head, probably shouldn't have, right? Body by Jake, right? Body by Jesus. Understand, in that decisive moment, everything will undergo a radical transformation. Our bodies will be glorified, our sinful nature will be eradicated, and our souls will be made into the full likeness of Jesus. And we have to let that future Glory occupied our minds as we live in this present, not-there-yet state. We must never forget that each of us who named Jesus as Lord are citizens of a higher kingdom. This world is not our home. And listen, as we live out our days, we must maintain our great allegiance to our sovereign Lord who's seated next to God. We must never allow ourselves to cave in to the pressures that are always trying to squeeze us into its mold. Instead, we must set our minds on things above, not on things below. We are headed to the finish line. We are headed home. That is where we belong. Therefore, we must run hard. We must press on. Uh, Until our king returns... Or he calls us home. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that rejoicing in the Lord, heeding the warning of putting confidence in your own achievements, considering everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord, straining toward what's ahead, forgetting what's behind, living up to the truth you already know, following godly examples, and waiting eagerly for your true and forever home. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Amen. So as we conclude, a couple questions. Are Are you in the race of faith? If not, I would encourage you to join the race to accept Jesus Christ, to receive him, surrender him as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you believe in him, you're ready to let him be in charge of your life, you're ready to confess him as Lord, and you've never been baptized, what a great day to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to be buried with him, and to rise to live a new life. And for those who've already done that, just, I really encourage you to make a sober assessment of your life. Consider, you know, are you making a strenuous effort? Are are, are you running hard? Are are you forgetting what's behind? Are, Are you straining toward what's ahead? And in this messed up crazy world, are you waiting eagerly for the sky to split open and your king to return to take you home? Father God, we love you and Holy Spirit, Jesus. Your word is living and active, and we see the example of Paul. And Father, all of us want to, we all said we want to live a Column A life, that we want to be able to say when we stand before you, when our death is imminent, that, that we have fought the good fight, that we have finished the race, that we have kept the faith. I pray whatever truth you want each person to grab a hold of and to work out in their life, you would help them to do that. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness that's in the cross. Help us to live a a cross-shaped life for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.